Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Ethiopia is in the midst of a fairly remarkable democratic renewal. Since taking office in April 2018, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has accelerated a process of political opening, including a greater freedom of the press, the release of political prisoners, a detente with Eritrea, and other meaningful reforms. But Ethiopia's transition to a liberal, open, and multi-party democracy has faced some significant challenges in recent weeks. On June 22nd, a general tried to orchestrate a coup attempt, which resulted in two high-profile assassinations. That coup attempt, which failed, came on the heels of intercommunal clashes that forced nearly three million people from their homes. Now, the transition underway in Ethiopia is very much being challenged. On the line to help explain why Ethiopian politics is at such a pivotal moment right now is William Davidson, senior Ethiopia analyst with the International Crisis Group. He offers listeners some helpful context and background for understanding the current situation, including what is driving change and the counterreactions to the process of democratic renewal. To that end, argues William Davidson, it is crucial to understand how rivalries within the ruling coalition, known as the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, or EPRDF, are driving politics. A quick note, thank you to all you premium subscribers who have filled out the survey I sent about the discounts you would like to receive to publications, products, membership organizations, and the likes. I'll be reaching out to those organizations and groups in the coming few weeks to see what kind of group discounts we can secure for you guys. Thanks for your suggestions and keep them coming. Also, the bonus episode this week is my 2014 conversation with the musician and social entrepreneur Kenna Zemetkin. He's a Grammy-nominated musician who has worked with the likes of Pharrell Williams, and he's also pioneered a kind of social entrepreneurship around sustainable development issues, including access to water. Uh, He was featured prominently in Malcolm Gladwell's 2005 book, Blink, so you might have seen him there if you're not familiar with his music. And of course, you can unlock that bonus episode and all the others that I've posted by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or just following the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Thank you all. Now, here is my conversation with William Davidson of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
so Abiy Ahmed um, obviously came to power um, last year in April, and at that time he was, you know, relatively little known, even in the Ethiopian political scene, and especially, you know, going back a month or so before that, because you know people knew he was in the in the running for um, for taking the position. Um, so that's to say that he had quite a um, a quick rise through the um, the EPRDF system, and obviously, well, his party is uh, the Oromo People's Democratic Organization. Yeah, and the, the EPRDF yeah. is the ruling coalition in Ethiopia. It's sort of like been the dominant political party since the early 1990s, we should say. Yes, that, absolutely. That's that's right. So last year was a, a, a change of power only in the sense that the previous chairperson of that ruling coalition, EPRDF, resigned, um, Haile Mariam, who was the prime minister. So the party appointed a new chairperson who became prime minister. So there was no there was no general election. It was simply a, an internal change of, of power. And the EPRDF itself um, has ruled since 1991, um, presided over a transitional government and then um, has, has won huge electoral victories. Um, every five years since the first elections in 1995. And the EPRDF is a coalition of four regional parties. Um, so from Ethiopia's two most populous regions, um, or three most populous regions, uh, Oromia, Amhara, and the Southern Nations, which is a, a, a very diverse region. And then the fourth region is, is, is Tigray, which has a, a population of around um, six million, so sort of significantly smaller than the others. Um, and Abi is from the Oromia region. He's from the Oromo wing of the EPRDF party. And, and so, basically, you have the EPRDF, which is you know indistinguishable from the Ethiopian state itself. And the EPRDF is made up of a coalition of regional parties that kind of more or less fall along ethnic uh, divisions and ethnic lines. Is that right? Yes, in the sense that the regions uh, more or less uh, fall across, uh, fall along ethnic lines. I mean, there, there's some complexity to that. I mentioned the Southern Nations, which is a, you know, a fantastically diverse region, uh, has 45 different um, indigenous ethnic groups. So the issue there for the the, the creators, the architects of, of the federation was, well, we can't have 45 different regional states for each group. So they created a, a composite um, region. Um, which was of of comparable size to Amhara and, and Oromia. So you can see that that southern region and therefore that southern wing of the EPRDF doesn't have anything mm -hmm. like a single ethnic characteristic. Yeah. When it comes to regions like Amhara, Oromia, Tigray, Somalia and Dafar as well, which are other non-EPRDF run regions, they do have dominant um, ethnic characteristics. And so Abiy comes to power uh, as chair of the EPRDF as the first uh, Oromia uh, person to to uh, become essentially prime minister and chair of, of the party. Is that right? Last year, yeah, that's right. Within the yes, with it certainly within the the EPRDF era. Um, so that was that was significant, and I think the the best way to explain that significance is by looking at the. Um, the major political events preceding his rise to power and his appointment as PM. And that was uh, essentially um, over three years of anti-government protests. And uh, a lot of those protests were against the ruling party, which, as you mentioned, is is almost synonymous with the state in Ethiopia and, and hugely dominant. A lot of those protests were focused in Oromia region. So 
the protesters were asking for genuine autonomy within the federal system for Oromia region. They wanted the Oromia party and the Oromia leadership to have their fair share of power within the EPRDF. They saw themselves as subservient to the other powers. And also they saw themselves as not having their fair share of power at the federal region. And then there were other associated complaints about a lack of, uh, you know, let's say an extractive economic relationship where they believed that Oromia's resources were taken, but the Oromia people didn't get benefits and mm-hmm. um, human rights abuses and this type of thing. So it was, it was those protests, anti-government protests, focused mainly in Oromia that preceded Abiy coming to power. And the, the, the key event there um, towards the end of this was that the ruling party itself, the coalition of regional parties, sort of realized that time was up. Um, you know, I mean, um, there were um, figures arguing for a more concerted crackdown to try and suppress the protests. But the, the dominant forces in the coalition realized that they had to change tack. Mm. So they launched, they announced uh, economic reforms, also significant political reforms in terms of uh, an amnesty for opponents and exiles, and then also this process of internal reform, which ended up with a, a, younger, um, a younger figure, not from the so-called old guard, so less steeped in the, in the, in the, sort of the, the, the somewhat the Marxist revolutionary doctrines of the front um, in the form of Abiy Ahmed, to, to take power. And he, though little known and, you know, not someone with a robust political profile, becomes like a, a real and genuine reformer, right? Like, can you discuss some of the reforms that he's implemented, both, um, you know, domestically, in terms of opening up some space for civil society and, and increasing some political freedoms, and also uh, entering into peace agreement with uh, Eritrea, or at least a sort of uh, cessation of hostilities, we should say. Yes, no, absolutely. But I mean, just before doing so, I, I think it is important to recognize that the EPRDF itself did recognize in late 2017 that, you know, as I, as I said, that, you know, the time was up, the change was needed. So the reform process was initiated by the EPRDF itself. And then the former prime minister, Haile Mariam Dessalen, who resigned in February he did initiate significant reforms. So, for example, a lot of the um, high-profile political prisoners that were released, they were released under Haile Mariam's watch. And, and things like the uh, economic liberalization process were already things that were set in motion. What Abiy did, um, and, and the people around him did, his, his political allies, they very much accelerated and exploited this opportunity that had been created by the EPRDF and the government's difficulties and the reform process. And that moves us to the agenda um, that you're talking about. So the political amnesty um, was, was extended and was, was thorough and, and, and comprehensive. So almost all political prisoners were released. And also very significantly, agreements were made with exiled um, you know, so-called terrorist groups um, you know, essentially exile political movements that had been banned by the government. Agreements were made for them to return to Ethiopia. Um, and then Abiy pressed ahead um, with uh, reaching out to, um, to President Isaias. Uh, but it's also, again, worth noting that this was a decision that, that emanated from the um, executive committee of the EPRDF. And, and you're referring to the president of Eritrea. 
Sorry, President Isaias, yes. yes. And, you know, similar sort of offers had been made, but because of the, the, the enmity between Ethiopia and Eritrea's rulers, they hadn't gone anywhere. But what Abiy did is, is capitalize on the, you know, the, 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 the fact that there was a new uh, reforming government in Ethiopia um, to renew the offers to Isaias. And finally, you know, they were accepted. And, and, and then we, we know what happened next. Um, diplomatics relations restarted, the movement of people reopened, and, 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 and some form of um, normalization of their bilateral relations was begun. And is there still commercial flights to this day between Eritrea and Ethiopia? Yes, um, that, that, yeah, that's my understanding. Um, but um, obviously, the peace process hasn't gone as quickly as, mm. as, as people had hoped for. Um, you know, very difficult, I think, considering the the decades of you know something of a of a cold war between the two nations and frozen diplomatic relations. So it's taken time for things to mm-hmm. to whir into action. So we've seen things like the the closure of border posts um, that had been by the Eritrean side, which had been reopened as part of the mm-hmm. the peace process. And essentially, there seems to be some fairly sort of major political structural. Mm-hmm. obstacles to, to full normalization. But in terms of the, the basic reopening of transport, telecommunications, diplomatic relations, that has maintained, as has the positive relations between the two, the two leaders. But there's, there's no doubt that things are taking some time and that there's some political obstacles there. I guess one thing that's interesting to me is that these reforms, this kind of political opening happened in like a global context in which there was a lot of democratic backsliding when democratic gains in a lot of countries, both in the the region uh, around Ethiopia, but also broader worldwide, you know, there was like a retreat from democracy. But in Ethiopia, there was something of of a a spark of a democratic renewal that was happening, kind of bucking global trends, which I always found to be pretty interesting at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fairly easy i mean clearly i you know i understand your point and it's you know and it's one that's that's caught a lot of people's attention but i think if you look at it in a more in the ethiopian context then it, it, it begins to make more sense um the eprdf rule had been um authoritarian in 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 many aspects um and had also been persistent allegations of, of ethnic bias in terms of the tigrayan domination um, of, of key, um, you know, key elements of power, such as the security apparatus. So it, it was a semi-authoritarian model that had run its course, and it was a political settlement which had never been accepted by um, by anything like all parts of Ethiopia's political spectrum. And and this had, you know, this had evolved over over many years and, and decades. And so, as I mentioned, you know, come 2017, after years of anti-government protests. Where else could Ethiopia's leaders go? They, they they had to go in the way of concessions to the opposition, and that led to the type of um, democratizing aspirations and and the, and the ongoing reforms that we've seen. And the significant and, and specific things there to mention are um, particularly the legislative reforms. So there was um, a, a particularly sweeping piece of anti-terrorism legislation. That had been used to stifle political um, op- legitimate opposition activity as as illegal. So Abiy's government is undertaking reforms to that. Efforts have been made to make it easier for civil society organisations, regardless of where their whether their funding came from, um, whether it was domestic or foreign. Reforms 
the legislation have been made to make it easier for them to engage in political activity. And then we've also seen the release of journalists as part of the widespread amnesty. Um, and we've seen the opening of, of media outlets and, and great hopes that um, a new media law will see a, a flourishing of the independent media. But it is worth mentioning that all of these things are um, they are in process. They're mostly at the, the, the legislative reform stage at the moment. And there's still a lot of work to be done to actually um, to build on that and create sort of genuinely flourishing elements of a democratic society. So as these reforms are underway, there's also a sharp increase in intercommunal violence in Ethiopia. And I think the scale of this is not quite appreciated by uh, those of us who are sort of more distant observers. Something like 3 million people had fled their home over the last several months uh, due to various uh, instances of, of intercommunal violence. Can you explain sort of what caused this, this spark, this increase, it seems, in that specific kind of violence? And do you see a link uh, to political decisions made by Abi and the you know, increase in intercommunal violence? Yes, um, sure. I mean, this, this is not, um, you can imagine this is not, a, this is not a, a simple issue. It's multifaceted. And also it's one which a number of, um, there's a number of different uh, viewpoints around. Now, to start with, I think the international community and, and observers are, are picking up on the scale of these problems. Um, the 3 million figure you mentioned was actually um, a, a, fig, a figure promoted as um, recognizing that Ethiopia had the highest number of people displaced, internally displaced by conflict of any country in the world in 2018. Um, so I think that sort of headline figure was was hard for people to ignore. And also the persistence of the type of unrest that you're talking about has made it hard for people to ignore, including some of the more uh, high profile incidents that, that, that we will get onto. It, also worth mentioning, Ethiopia has a relatively large population of 100 million people. And this is not a per capita record we're looking at, but it is three million people. And that does happen to be the most in in the world. Now, in terms of the reasons for this, I mentioned that there's different viewpoints. Um, so to start with one of the more common viewpoints, which is hard to um, sort of assess the veracity of, there are some people who simply say that the, um, the rulers, and particularly the rulers from Tigray, and particularly the, the officials from the Tigray People's Liberation Front, who've largely lost out on federal power, in the changes last year. Mm -hmm. They say they have activated their networks across the country to act as spoilers, uh, mobilize local elites simply to cause trouble for the leaders who displaced them and therefore um, undermine their reputation and, and their program. This is a persistent allegation. Um, there's some sort of, um, you know, it, 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 there's some sort of uh, neat logic to it. Um, there isn't that much firsthand evidence that I've seen um, which actually shows instances of this occurring. But and, we cannot, it's, it's, it's we worth, cannot rule it out. And it's worth pointing out that Melis Zanawi, like the, the long, yeah. long time ruler of Ethiopia before he died in office a few years ago, it was Tigray. And, 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 and the idea is that sort of Tigray networks were sort of controlling the reins of government. Yes, that, that's certainly an important component. Equally important is that 
when this EPIDF regime began in 1991, it was the TPLF that was the dominant insurgent group that then became the core of the government and actually formed the new military. Mm-hmm. And, and ever since then, it had considerable um, influence on, on state power, you know, nominally has e- an equal share of power within the, the ruling EPRDF coalition. But for example, you know, Prime Minister Meles was an incredibly influential figure for, 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 for many years. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, those, those allegations absolutely come from there. So, but in terms... Yeah. Well, so 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 that that you articulated one possible explanation. Are are there others? Is there one that you find perhaps most compelling for the the spark of this intercommunal violence last year? Yeah, whether it would be considered one explanation, I, I'm not sure, but I think there's certainly other other factors that that that, um, that should be considered that I find um, compelling. If we look at the um, at the period uh, of unrest that brought Abiy Ahmed to power. Um, that was anti-government protests. It was protests against the, uh, the EPRDF and led to this process of internal um, transformation within the EPRDF. And then we have a government that's come to power, um, which is expressed and or you know, which is you know, driven through a very different approach to governance, um, to governing Ethiopia than had previ- previously existed. What I'm getting at there is that the system has undergone considerable turmoil. It, was, it, it underwent a lot of turmoil during the, the years of, of unrest, um, as the government was focused on, on trying to respond in, in some way, whether through force or other means, to the anti-government protests. And then it's also faced considerable turmoil because of the changes that have been enacted in the months preceding Abiy coming to power, and then the months since. And by that, I'm talking about the opening of the political space. So you have all Ethiopian political groups and interests coming back to the power, sorry, coming back to the country at a time when there's a sense that it's an opportunity to um, to try and pursue your interests. And it's a it's a good it's it's an opportune moment to try and influence Ethiopia's future. So you have this broadening of the political space. We also have the changes to the federal security apparatus which, you know, like we've discussed, were heavily um, Tigrayan influenced. But because of that influence and because of some of the, the practices, which Prime Minister Abiy has, has described as you know, systemic violations, therefore there was wholesale changes to the security apparatus. And this has led, um, undoubtedly, you know, according to most observers, to reduced effectiveness of mm. the security apparatus. And then we have the possibly harder to map out, but, but arguably more influential fact that you know, Ethiopia was heavily, um, the, 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 the EPRDF network, the EPRDF governing structure in terms of coordinating policy, um, in terms of appointing officials, and in terms of you know, measures of accountability and, and disciplining officials, right down from federal level to village level, you know, these are in disarray because of the nature of the challenge, the, the nature mm. of the opposition that the EPRDF has faced and the process of internal reform. So at, at the same time that opposition actors have returned and are emboldened, then key elements of the governing structure in Ethiopia, the party, the government itself, the security apparatus have all broken down. And that, I believe, is the, 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 the important context that has led to these various sort of territorial disputes, disputes over power and identity, um, you know, various other grievances um, between, as, you know, between lots of different 
regions and within regions that I believe has allowed these types of um, these types of grievances to express themselves in terms of the intercommunal conflict and the mass displacement that we've seen. And and that seems to lead us to uh, June twenty second of of this year. Can you describe? What happened on that day? Or better yet, what do we know about what happened on that day? Because I know there seems to be a lot of dispute. Yes, no, I I can. I I think it might be most helpful if I just provide a bit of context to that and link it to what I was just saying. Because I think this brings us on to, you know, not just describing a, a difficult political situation with many challenges and opportunities, which I think is, you know, what we've discussed so far. But also it brings into question exactly how this process has evolved and, and how it's been managed over the last year or so um, by, the, by the new administration and all other actors. So what happened in Amhara region, like many regions, is that former dissidents and, and, and former political prisoners um, were released from jail and returned to the country. And this, time, this came at a time when, when during the period of anti-government protests, Um, figures from the Amhara wing of the ruling party and also figures from outside the the ruling party structures had become more and more disgruntled at their perceived lack of power um, and their perceived subservience to the the, the TPLF, the Tigrayan party, um, within the federal structure. So you have this moment of political opening and then you have that political context, which is a desire for various Amhara political factions to reassert themselves within Ethiopian politics. As a result, last year, um, a, a figure called uh, Asaman Tsege was released from jail. He was accused of coup plotting by Melezanawi's government in 2009. Um, he was released from jail. Um, he had a certain amount of, of popularity. He had the military background. And later that year, he was promoted to the, uh, the upper echelons of the ruling party in Amhara, and he was made regional security chief by Amhara's regional government. This was a clear indication that the, the, the ruling party, which, which was part of the ruling coalition, was looking to further these claims to, um, you know, to, to rebalance the PRDF in its favor and, and maybe even rebalance the federation in its favor by promoting someone who was an avowed opponent of, of the government. So these were the sorts of political dynamics that were occurring in various places in Ethiopia last year, but this was a very um, you know, important and, and consequential uh, example. Um, Asaman Altsige, this released prisoner become regional security chief, then was given a reasonable, well, a considerable amount of autonomy and power um, within the Amhara um, ruling, within the Amhara government um, as a security chief. And he built up um, the, the regional security forces and made um, at least aggressive rhetorical noises against claims to Tigrayan territory, um, claims to territory of the Gumuz people to the west of Amhara, and and just engaged in um, generally quite assertive and and, and, at, and at times aggressive political activity. Um, this had been a concern in Ethiopia um, for a number of months amongst you know various constituencies that didn't support Asamano. Um, and it is believed that the elements of the government in Amhara, the leadership, uh, in partnership with uh, probably the prime minister himself and allies in the federal government, realized the danger 
of the type of approach that Amhara's security chief, Asamanal, uh, realized, realized those dangers and were looking to remove him from his position. That's our, our understanding of, of the context of June 22nd. Then, as you uh, implied, um, there's a certain amount of doubt and there's certainly, um, there's certainly a lot of different viewpoints about exactly what happened. But it does seem to be, there does seem to be plenty of evidence that Asamanel reacted to a perceived threat to his power and a group of loyalist um, security forces then uh, took action against the regional leadership, you know, perhaps 200 or so loyalist forces took action against the regional leadership and that included the fatal attack um, on Ambacho Mekonnen. Um, the late president and and some of his close colleagues, um, and then on June the twenty second. So, that, so, that so, was, so basically, yeah. this group, the the the, the loyalists to yeah. this sort of Amara nationalist, I guess you can call them. I don't know. Um, yeah. uh, um, attacked the federal government's president of the Amara region. No, sorry, I should I should have been should have been much clearer there. Uh, no, they 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 attacked the um, Amhara regional leadership in in the in the regional capital Bahidar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, then subsequent to that, two hours later, also there was also um, the assassination of the federal military chief of staff in Addis Ababa. Mm. Um, and the official story is that those two events were were directly linked, and essentially that you know, Asamanel um, he ordered also the killing of the of the military chief of staff. Um, so it was very much a product of the political opening. Um, it was also a, a product in the rise of ethno-national sentiment, as, as you just referred to, Amhara nationalism. Um, and I would also suggest it's um, indicative of a transition, a, a, you know, a very difficult political transition with lots of challenges that hasn't been well managed at times and in various locations. So are the perpetrators of these attacks now in jail? Well, the exact fate of the assassins um, of the Amhara regional leadership, I'm not entirely sure about. Um, but there were a, a number of um, security forces loyal to Asamanel who were killed. There were also a large number who were arrested. And Asamanel himself was killed two days later, sort of escaping from Bahidar. Um, and then the assassin of the military chief of staff is. I believe, still um, injured in a military hospital in Addis Ababa, although there has been very little news about his fate and there was some initial confusion about um, about his fate. So, so this was, I mean, a fairly significant challenge to Abiy and, and some of the political reforms that he has sought to enact and also probably reflective, as you described, of the somewhat uh, chaotic and uncertain and transitional moment that that Ethiopia is in right now. So where do we go from here? What, what um, you know, you're with a crisis group, you always give recommendations to various groups that have uh, the ability to influence events on the ground. What do you recommend that the international community do to shore up these you know, democratic reforms in Ethiopia and more broadly, um, you know, reduce the prospect of, of future violence? Yeah, thanks. Uh, obviously, a, a very important, um, very important question. Uh, and again, I think it's best to, you know, to answer and, and speak to the, the recommendations with a little, little bit of context, the first part of your, your question. 
Um, I wouldn't say events in Amhara region, the assassination of the regional leadership. Personally, I didn't view them as a direct attack on Abbey's reforms. You know, I see this as a product of local, um, as, as in regional political dynamics and, and divisions within the, um, the Amhara political scene about the best way forward there. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's not much understood about the assassination of the military chief of staff. Um, so I would see them more as a, a product of this very turbulent political environment. And I, I would and then I would present them as a, a huge challenge to the reform agenda of Abiy Ahmed because of what they say about the political turbulence and because of also the, the, the very fact that the government has to spend its time responding to incidents like this means that it's less able to focus on more long-term measures to try and improve the political economic conditions that make these types of, of violent events less likely. I didn't personally see them as, as some sort of, um, you know, deliberately sort of regressive old guard attack um, against the reforms. I saw them as a product of this very destabilizing transition. Now, with regards to where do the various parties and, and maybe particularly the, the federal government, um, where, do they, where do they go next? It, at, at Crisis Group, we've been strong and, and clear um, in terms of uh, our, our recent statements that a lot of this is emanating from the, um, the divisions and therefore the, um, the, you know, the, the unsteadiness of the ruling coalition itself. As you know, it's been hugely dominant and hugely pervasive uh, throughout Ethiopian politics and government um, for the last two and a half decades. Now it's different parties are moving apart from each other. There's considerable um, grievances between them, such as being between Amhara and Tigray. And then there's this destabilizing process of internal reform, where they're trying to shake off an authoritarian legacy, also trying to shift away from a state-led economy to a private sector led economy. Um, but ultimately, this foundation, um, which had operated, um, yes, in quite an authoritarian way, but in a way which had um, lent itself to some sort of state integrity and state stability in Ethiopia, is now being shaken because of these, these divisions and, and, and these um, internal reform processes. So the question is, or I think the recommendation is, before some the sort of stability that Abiy needs um, with regards to the security situation, the political situation, to try and achieve that stability, first, the problems within the ruling coalition need to be addressed. Some sort of um, consensus needs to be arrived at. Um, then hopefully that will lead to some sort of restoration of order um, in terms of these interregional tensions, some sort of improvement in terms of the operation of the security apparatus. The EPRDF turn, needs to uh, clean its own house first, sort of thing. The EPRDF needs to clean its own house, not as a solution to Ethiopia's political future, because the EPRDF looks like Ethiopia's past. But we need to get some sort of stability within the EPRDF to create the platform for broader political discussions um, to be had. Because at the moment, the government is simply firefighting. And a lot of the fire, fires that are springing up seem to be the result of this general systemic instability. So unless you steady the system itself, then it's going to be hard to create the space um, for, yes, broader political negotiations, maybe at some point discussions over modifications to the constitution and a type of long-term democratic institutional 
um, reforms and improvements that the, that the authorities are looking to undertake. So as a first step to getting there, we really need to, to steady, the, steady the ship. Uh, well, William, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to William Davidson. That was uh, helpful. And yeah, as I mentioned at the outset, you know, Ethiopia is very much in a transitional period right now. So it's very helpful, I think, to understand some of the context and background to what is going on there. Now, as always, big thank you to you premium subscribers. I've uh, added a couple of new tiers to the premium subscription program, this time around to organizations. If you're with an organization and want group access for your staff too, Don's Digest and also some shout outs on the podcast uh, do check out that new tier also uh, feel free to send me an email whenever you like you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com alright see you next time bye